Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I am genuinely delighted to have as my guest, Jason Jordan. Jason is the author of a book many of you will have read called Cracking the Sales Management Code. Um, He is a management expert. He's also the author of another book, which I'm very excited about, called Sales Insanity, which is 20 of the dumbest things that you will ever see or hear salespeople or management do. We're going to be exploring things like, why am I forecasting? Why isn't it accurate? What is it uh, that I should be measuring? Instead of all these lagging indicators that tell me nothing useful uh, until after the event, how can I actually use the information to help me modify my behavior and improve my performance? How do I take my sales force to the next level? Why are my managers so undertrained and incompetent? These are the kind of questions that we're going to be looking at today. Blind spots. One of the blind spots that Jason's going to be talking about is everyone fixates on the sales process, but no one really pays much attention to the buying side. And that is a huge mistake. Jason, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Excellent. Would you mind giving the audience 60 seconds on your history, please? Sure. Started out in sales, 100% commission out of college, university. I went to business school here at the University of Virginia, where I live, in, in uh, near Charlottesville, Virginia. Then went into sales again, management consulting, back into sales, back into management consulting. And then about 15 years ago, became really obsessed with frontline sales management. As a consultant, I became pretty apparent that if the frontline sales managers understood and bought into a change, it typically happened pretty well. If they didn't and they felt that their role was to shelter their sales team from the organization, didn't go so good. So did some research into sales management, measurement best practices, kind of that ended up being cracking sales management code for about a decade, um, had a company with a couple other of, uh, partners called Vantage Point. We were, I think it's fair to say, the only company really focused on exclusively training sales managers, frontline sales managers and sales leaders left there at the end of 2018. And since then have been working um, not by design, but pretty exclusively with private equity companies in a couple of capacities, one doing consulting, but in four instances, and I know this is something that you uh, do as well, I kind of dropped in as an interim executive. So dropped in, uh, I'm doing my fourth stint as an interim chief revenue officer while we you know, put some things in place and then ultimately find someone to replace myself, which has been after you know a career of consulting and selling and trying to train leadership teams to actually be the sales leader has been liberating and uh, very insightful. Since leaving Sandler last year, the work that I've been doing, because I've been CRO for half a dozen companies, and it's so much fun. Can't believe that management can be this much fun, because I, I have to say my early stints in management, uh, for reasons we will discuss, was excruciating, because I hadn't got a clue. I just got tapped on the shoulder and told, oh, you're good at this, why don't you run the team? And I hadn't got a clue. All of a sudden, I had to recruit, had to train, onboard, develop, uh, hire, fire, had to deal with pastoral issues, uh, sickness, absenteeism, and all of these guys were commission-only as well. And I was, what, 22? I hadn't got a clue. Yeah. Who puts a 22-year-old in charge of uh, other human beings, apart from the military? Well, there's that experience, but then also, you know, you and I have been in the unique situation, at least me, for the last two and a half years. I mean, who gets to be CRO four times in two years? No one that's good at it. (laughs) So... In in fairness, they are concurrent. (laughs) (laughs) Getting to step on over and over again, you start to see commonalities and, you know, the issues become pretty apparent where someone who's in seat for years and years on end, you know, they kind of 
don't see it, right? I mean, they're they're got their blinders on. Um, well, and, and th- this is one of the most important issues. And I, I think we need the, the grit in the oyster makes the pearl. And one of my big bugbears is management recruiting in their own image only weaker mm-hmm. and having a tendency to recruit to strengthen the walls of the echo chamber. Why is it that despite the fact we know that diverse teams produce inevitably produce infinitely more creative solutions to problems, faster, cheaper. Why do we keep recruiting people just like us? Comfort, familiarity. I think it's pretty obvious. Okay. So why do leadership tolerate that? Well, I think it's an interesting thing when you talk about CEOs and sales leaders. It's a fact that not that many CEOs came up through sales. Most would come up through finance or operations. There was a study done, this has been over a decade ago, but of the, you know, the kind of the career paths of CEOs in the Fortune 500. And I think the only function that had fewer CEOs than sales was HR. And, you know, so I think a lot of people, and I've kind of dealt with this. Really? Yeah. It's it's changed a bit now. SAP and some others have kind of promoted sales leaders, but typically CEOs not come up. I think the actual measure was they had spent less than six months in sales uh, was the kind of cutoff of whether or not they'd come up through the... So I think that sales is still remarkably, I mean, CRM and reporting has put a little bit of a lens on it, but, you know, CEOs and and the ones that I've worked with in my time don't really understand sales. And I think that's why the sales leader just gets turned over every 24 months or 18 or whatever the number is, right? I mean, salesperson. I think 16 to 18 months now for manager. Yeah. So the sales leader is either producing or they're not. If they're not producing, you know, just get a new one. and. I mean, I think it's just that simple. I think that there's not a great understanding of is my sales leader. I mean, we don't, we don't, we can't answer typically if our salespeople are any good. It's even more difficult to manage, you know, tell if sales manager is any good, and it's even more removed from reality to know if your sales leader is any good. <laughs> okay, so let me ask you this then: you've got a blank sheet of paper, and you're able to build your sales team from scratch. Given where we are at the moment, pandemic, possibility of another recession around the corner, what advice would you give to people in terms of building that management layer, given all the turmoil that's going on, fast pace of change, uncertainty? The very foundational thing to understand about to understand before you start putting people in sales management positions is what do you want them to do? Right? It's pretty obvious what we want salespeople to do. We want them to go out and sell. And we can say kind of theoretically, well, we want our managers to make the sales team better. But I think in reality, if you know, if a sales leader had to write down the top three things they want their sales managers doing, I would hope forecasting is not number one, though that's probably the one thing they expect from sales managers. Right? I mean, if you you sat down and said, okay, what I really need my sales leaders, uh, sales managers to be doing is this, this, and this, it probably wouldn't be forecasting. It probably wouldn't be firefighting. It probably wouldn't be right all the things that we actually ask them to do. So, I mean, think foundationally, the role is under, like if you said, I want my sales leader, I want my sales managers to be coaching, then you would look for people who can coach. <laughs> if you say you want your sales managers developing skills, and I think fundamentally the role is just misunderstood. And I think that was part of the thing at Vantage Point was part of the driver and my motive to kind of get into the, the, the game of developing sales managers is because, you know, we take our best salespeople, we promote them to sales manager. 
right? And we've done two things. We've just removed our best salesperson and we've just created a shitty sales manager. Yep. And, you know, we expect them to forecast, but we don't, we don't teach them the forecast. We expect them to manage the pipeline. We don't teach them to manage the pipeline. We expect them to coach. We don't really teach them how to coach salespeople. And so there's just total misalignment. And then, you know, and then, then what we do is we tell them to give us forecasts. And that's the most important thing in there in the, in the universe for a frontline sales manager, VP of sales and forecasting. I could talk for the next hour about how, um, ridiculous it is awesome we will go down there in a moment but i I just want to raise something first to my mind there are five critical functions every sales manager has and they should be at the top of every hiring template or job description hire the best people if you hire the best people 95 percent of your management problems disappear overnight now that doesn't mean they're easy in fact hiring the best people often means you hire bloody difficult people who are mavericks And you need to give them enough rope, but also uh, know when to constrain them. Get the best out of them. That means you are onboarding them, pre-onboarding them, onboarding them, training them, coaching them, holding them to account, going on ride-alongs, offering pastoral care. But whatever it is that's required to help them meet their full potential. The third is make sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day. Now, one of the problems I see at the moment is the... um, overinvestment in technology that managers don't understand. And this technology spaghetti has grown up around the sales and um, marketing tech, where people are just buying shiny objects in the hope that they can fix the complex problems that they're not fixing in traditional ways, because they don't understand that they're dealing with a complex, wicked problem, not just simply something you can throw a point solution at. The fourth thing they need to do is protect them from acts of idiocy from your own leadership and management uh, from above and help them clear roadblocks. And the fifth is manage inclusively. And this speaks to your point. Your people will do the forecasting and they will do all the hard work and the heavy lifting if you teach them how. But most managers don't know how to recruit. And so they recruit poorly because they're still asking stupid questions like, sell me this pen. What do you want to be when you grow up? And you just got to wonder, why are these people not trained in the single most important function of management, which is hiring? And then we're in the third generation of managers who don't know how to coach. They don't even know how to prospect, let alone coach. So they can't coach prospecting. So you've got all of these people fixated on the wrong end of the problem. Why are we so fixated on symptoms, not cause? Because that's what we see. Nah, that's fair. You see the symptom. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think the... It's so funny. I think you mentioned the technology. I mean, you mentioned a couple of things which I might dig into a little bit. I mean, the technology, you know, I think about the time the word tech stack showed up in our vocabulary. It was about the time we like became obsessed with the wrong things. <laughs> I, I, of course, believe in you know, cracking sales management code and some of the other stuff I've done kind of lend, lend this. You know, the technology is cool. The check, technology is neat, but it's it's an enabler. It's not the strategy, right? There was a while when CRM was the strategy. Uh, everyone, if you had CRM, you had a strategic advantage, right? In the late nineties, early thousands. And it was never that way. Um, and in fact, someone asked me, I can't even spend a bit, but you know, what's the biggest innovation in sales, you know, in the last 10, 20 years, and almost anyone would say technology, but it's not the case. You know, in reality, in my perspective, the biggest innovation in sales in the last 20 years has been process innovation, right? It's been customer success teams. It's been BDRs and SDRs. It's been kind of chopping up this process into pieces and putting specialists in place and largely driven by SaaS companies, right? They've been kind of the leader of this. And, um, you know, sure, te- you know, technology has enabled that, 
you can't have this process chopped up unless there's technology to seem, you know, seamlessly communicate the, you know, from one person to the next. But technology has not been the innovation. Technology has been with us since the first person wrote a report in pen on paper, right? Paper, the persistent database, you know. <laughs> but we get obsessed with shiny objects in sales and, and more so than other parts of the organization, it seems. Can I challenge something you just said? Yeah, sure. Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations talked about the pin factory and breaking the functions down. I was an econ major. But if you remember at the end, he said, don't do it. It's a really bad idea. I didn't know that. Well, everyone glosses over that part because they just buy into the pin factory and the production line. Let me posit something. The last 40 years, thanks to Milton Friedman, the, the lieutenant of Satan, pushing this whole lie about businesses existing purely to deliver shareholder value. We don't exist to deliver shareholder value. Shareholders are people who invest money and take a risk in the hope that they will get a return. The people we serve are our customers, our people, our community, and the investors are taking a risk. They have no right to derail, destabilize the business by imposing things that are unnecessary hindrances. So for example, a private company does not need to work on quarterly reporting cycles. Worst. Absolutely stupid. So that then encourages acts of idiocy, number four in my list of things that management should be protecting against. For example, pillaging next quarter's pipeline to make this quarter's quota because you fucked up two quarters ago and you didn't do your prospecting back when you should have. Back to my my forecasting. um, So let's come to the, the, the issue. Should we really be creating this level of specialization within the sales process? Or do you feel that that may be distancing us from the customer? Well, I don't think it's distancing us from the customer. I think you have to understand the boundaries of what you can do. So, you know, there's a, let's just, let's just take it back to the very basic struggle, like hunter farmer, right? So the hunter farmer model was, you probably know this, but began in the insurance industry. So it used to be the case that people would go door to door and sell insurance. The same people would go and collect the coupons, right? They'd go collect the payments. And finally, one insurance company said, well, we've got these people who are really good at selling. Why do we have them walking around collecting payments? And the hunter-farmer model was born. And it works perfectly when you can separate the salesperson from the product. And this is the, this is the breakdown that services companies have all the time. So if you can separate the service from the from the salesperson or the product from the salesperson, then the hunter-farmer model is great, right? And IT is the perfect example. Right, what do you I mean can, by separating them? Well, so IT is the perfect example. So I can send in someone to sell you I, to, to sell you the software, and then that person can go away. Someone else comes in, implements it, and then yet another person comes in and helps you maximize the right the customer success. Comes in and trains you and does the stuff. And that's completely suitable, right? You just want the software, but. You know, professional services companies like consultants have forever tried to implement a pure sales force, right? They've said, let's have people selling consulting services, but it's not the way consulting works. When you're, when you're selling consulting, the product doesn't exist until you've already completed the project. And what people are really buying is the competence of the salesperson, which is the partner who comes. And this is the madness that, that buyers of consulting services have. Like, they're like, well, the partner came in and sold me and we totally believed he or she was going to be competent and deliver this result. And then they sent in a bunch of 27-year-old MBAs to actually do it and things got screwed up. Right, you can't separate the salesperson from the product in that situation, and so I think in IT and you know product sales and things like that, you probably can chop it up um, as long as the you know as the communication is there and the and the process is is managed. 
Um, but some industries have really tried to push him to that, and they really can't get away with it because of the nature of the sale. And Hunter Farm Road is like, again, the most basic of all, but there's some industries where you can get away with this, and there's some industries where you can't get away with this. And I don't think that people Fair understand point. the subtleties of it. This is really interesting because I look at the activities and behavior of most managers in sales. And um, Jonathan Farrington did a study sure. um, uh, in 2019. And his conclusion was that 94% of sales managers are not fit for purpose. Well, again, what's the purpose? Don't even look remotely <laughs> surprised. <laughs> no, well, I, again, I think the question of what's the purpose is where most people get it wrong. Okay, so let's tackle that issue. In your mind, what is the purpose of sales management? Purpose of sales management is to enable and develop the sales team. And, you know, it's not to ride herd on top of them. It's not to extract numbers from them. It's not like it's basically they're there for the sales team, right? They're servant leaders in my mind. And that's not the way that they're viewed or measured or managed. Okay. So let's then move on to the measurements because... I know you're strongly opinionated on this, as am I. What are the metrics that a manager can actually benefit from knowing so they can adjust the momentum or velocity um, or trajectory of the sales team mid-quarter, as opposed to looking over their shoulder and saying, oh, shit, we screwed up there. We should, what we should have done is. So what, what are the metrics that people should be measuring? Well, I can tell you the things that I, as a sales leader myself over the past couple of years, the things that I've kind of come to. To me, there are kind of three, and you'll you'll get this immediately. Like first, there's the activity. What are they actually doing? And I don't just mean the volume of calls. I mean, literally, what are they actually doing? Are they doing call plans? Are they doing account plans? Are they Who are they calling on? What types of customers, <laughs> right? It's not just the volume, but it's the activity, right? So that, that's the leading, the most leading of leading indicators is what they're doing. Yeah. You know, the second is the pipeline. And there's all kinds of dynamics around the pipeline right? Win rate, deals advancing, size of the pipeline, all kinds of, uh, I think the pipeline is probably the greatest coaching tool that we don't understand. And then ultimately, of course, you have to be looking at the results they get, right? You have to look at the, are they getting, are they closing the deals? Are they getting a quota? So I think there's kind of like the, the activity or the behaviors is the kind of leading indicator. The pipeline kind of tells you midstream how things are going. And then, you know, obviously the outcomes are what you're going to get paid on, hired, fired, you know, brutalized on. So if you know what they're doing and you know how things are proceeding and you know what you're getting, I think you're set up for success. Now, how you measure behaviors and activity, you know, how you measure the pipeline, how you measure the outcomes is, you know, the, the real trick of it. So let's dig into that pipeline piece, because that sounds really interesting. How should one structure the pipeline, first of all, so that it's actually meaningful and useful? Well, so that you get to the... Um, the stages of the sales pipeline, right? The the milestones in the in the sales processes is what you're actually asking. And I think that you know, if you look at most people's CRM and look at how they're measuring the sales process, um, you know, it's lead, qualified, discovery, proposal, right? There's these very sales focused stages. I had a, a buyer, a, a customer one time, a client down in Dallas. And he said something so brilliant. We, 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 we talked about this before we turned on the cameras. He said, I don't teach my salespeople how to sell. He said, I teach my salespeople how our customers buy. And if they understand how our customers buy, they're smart enough to figure out the selling part. And I think that that's the, um, 
that's the key thing that we miss when it comes to the milestones in our in our pipeline is we're very focused on what the salesperson is doing, not what the buyer is doing. And so, you know, I think that's the you know, there's 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 challenge to this, but I think the most fundamental thing to manage managing the pipeline, and I mean forecasting as well, since the forecast comes out of the pipeline for most business to business sales forces, is getting the milestones right, getting the stages right, and preferably that you know each of those stages represents some incremental commitment from the buyer. Right, not like sending a proposal is in everyone's sales process. What commitment does it take from a buyer to receive your proposal? If something goes to proposal, and we 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 boost the likelihood of our winning it from thirty percent to sixty percent, or whatever it is. Right, just because we wrote a proposal and pressed send on email. So I think I think there's just a lot of process work to be done in most organizations, and that's one of the most foundational things that people miss. Mm. Okay. Let's take a little bit of time to understand your process for mapping out the buyer's journey. I think that'd be really interesting. Well, it's not that hard. I mean, we interact with buyers all the time. All you have to do is just put yourself in their shoes. So, you know, if you're selling software, just think, okay, now I'm the IT director, you know, who's going to buy this software. How does this happen? Where do they learn about us? Okay, well, probably conferences, the internet, right? Peers. Um, you know, poking around. Okay. Then once they become interested, what do they do? Well, they fill out some forms online or they, and then salesperson calls them then, but well, then they're in this education period. I mean, if you, whatever you're selling, you know, how customers buy, you just don't take the time to think, think it through. Instead, we see what we're doing. We're prospecting, we're doing demos, we're writing proposals, we're negotiating. Right. And, And it's not, it's not really that hard. And if, if you're that baffled by it, just interview some customers. You know, call, <laughs> just interview some customers. Hey, how'd this go? How did, where did you, where did you learn about us? What, what we're just, and it's not, it's not rocket science. It can't be. Well, this is really interesting because over the years, I've seen thousands of salespeople crash their careers on the rocks because they're afraid. They don't necessarily see themselves as having rights. They don't see themselves as having equal business stature with the customer. Then they're thrown in at the deep end. And the only thing they know about is product. Because mm. no, no one's that's what they were taught. And then they're forced by many managers to just up their activity rate, double your call rate, double your spam rate, double your content production, whatever it happens to be. But it's focused on again on the wrong end of the problem. It's on the activity instead of focusing on how do we get the outcome that we want with the minimum effort, the minimum resource uh, necessary. And far, far too few managers spend any time in reflection. Very few organizations are uh, actively competing against themselves by attacking their processes on a regular basis and seeing whether or not they're still fit for purpose. There's an apocryphal story where the British Army commissioned a study into artillery firing. The long and short of it was that for 70 years, the army had been holding an invisible horse because once they'd loaded the shell into the back of the gun, one of them would stay behind and turn with his back to the battlefield. The other one would march eight paces, turn around, put his right hand behind his back and hold up his left hand. When they spoke to an old codger who was in the First World War, he said, oh, they're holding a horse. But they hadn't had horse-drawn artillery for 70 years or so. 
<laughs> they were still holding on to that. And you see that with this fixation with the metrics that we see management uh, focused on. Number of dials, number of uh, effectives, number of first meetings, number of proposals, number of demos. But none of that really tells me a whole heap as a manager. I'm interested in the number of hourly effective conversations that they have. There's technology out there that allows you to have five to nine conversations an hour, as opposed to one or two a day. The average SDR, according to Chris Beal at Connect and Sell, is productive for three minutes a day. That's 0.000625% of your salary bill on SDRs is actually producing something. They fixate on stuff that doesn't matter. They, they're obsessed with metrics that, don't, that are meaningless. They're, they're useful for someone in audit, but they don't function to help sales improve their performance or the customer. To, let me get back to something you said at the beginning of your, of your comment about salespeople afraid to ask questions. So I've been working with some sales teams, um, obviously. Well, let me even step away from that. So I teach a course in, in sales and sales management at the, in the MBA program here at University of Virginia. And the very first class we have, we start with the buying process. And there's a case yeah. where putting them in the buyer, it's a, it's a case basically about someone who's trying to, to uh, buy printers and copiers. And it's just all about the chaos that's going on from the buyer's perspective. You know, and then you kind of pause it as a salesperson, what, what of this do you see, right? And so the sales teams that I've been leading and working with, I've just been obsessed with the buying process. And the way I phrase it is, Early in, early in the sales process, your, your task is to obviously start positioning your company and your product and building credibility and posturing all this thing. Your task is to understand the buying process. Who are the buyers? What are the stages? And I said, once you understand the buying process, it becomes an open book test, right? Then you just hold the buyer's hand as they go through that process. Make sure you're giving all the information and all the content they need to make the decision in your favor. It's all about the buying process, and we really just don't teach it. Right. Uh, when, we, when we onboard salespeople, we teach them about the products. We teach them how to use CRM. We teach them all the things they need to operate within our sphere as a sales force. Where's the customer training? <laughs> right. I mean, only in the last 10 years has sales adopted buyer personas as something. Right. We pulled that in. We pulled from marketing buyer personas. And we finally started thinking, oh, who are we selling to? <laughs> oh, we're selling to the CFO. What are, what are they interested in? Oh, we're selling to the IT director. What are they interested in? I mean, it's only been recently that we even started to look at the buyers and what their motives were. And there's much more work to be done. This thing comes to this topic of training, because I've been working with sales teams for 35 years now, and we really are quite a thick bunch. What flabbergasts me is how do we not learn? Um, There's only so many times you can beat your head against the same brick and blame it for the headache. The training is completely useless, by and large. Um, I think the training industry is a cabal. It's $35 billion a year spent on, I don't know, know, just bothering people. The actual lasting impact of training is negligible by and large uh, within the sales environment. It's heartbreaking because I I know that training works if it's done right. It's rare that I've worked with clients where I wasn't able to get them triple-digit growth within a year and sustain it. But they're not focused on any of the stuff that matters, questioning listening, empathy, understanding the moving parts in a business, understanding the pressure that your customer is under, uh, all the different people who are scrutinizing them, the different centers of dissatisfaction, the departmental flow, the dynamics. None of that is taught 
to salespeople. And you're giving 23-year-olds a list and asking them to go and phone gnarly old buggers like you and me. You're in their 50s, been around the houses. And you talking to me about your shiny printer means nothing. What do we have to do to make training effective? Well, I think we have to get just to the fundamentals, right? I mean, what is it? What what are the key behaviors and and key you know, kind of pieces of information that salespeople need to succeed, right? And to your point, it's and, and to my point, it's understanding the customer, right? Understanding the customer's need, the customer's buying process, the customer's perspective. Yes, um, I mean, it's all about the customer. Yeah, right. I interviewed someone on Friday last week. And he made a really good point, which is that every single job description should have a window into the customer. Everyone should know what their part is and how they affect the customer. But almost no one pays any attention to that. And you've got the compensation system as well, which is another big problem, because I think you've got the, uh, the triumvirate of mismatched understanding of the customer, an emphasis on all the wrong things from the salesperson because it makes you sell selfishly and a total lack of understanding of who your customers really are. I'm not saying this with everybody, but the by and large, when you look at your average salesperson, they're fixated on, can I make a sale rather than how can I create a solution to a problem my customer has? How can I help them? And whether they buy or not now doesn't matter because I, when I'm working with my clients, we're always thinking long-term. I'm not prospecting for a customer today. I'm prospecting for a customer who will still be a customer in 10 years' time. Now, that shift in mindset um, and taking the the functional, not necessarily taking the functional way, but equipping these young uh, salespeople to actually have a conversation that's meaningful to the customer. I'm just startled by how much money is wasted. And then they complain. Um, I, I was speaking to a company about two weeks ago, and they're on their fourth methodology in five years. And the first one was probably fine. Yeah. The one one before that was probably fine. All of them are fine. They were Miller-Hyman, Spin, Sandler, and Richardson. They're all All, good companies. All all fine. They're all perfectly fine. It's it's leadership and the management that are the problem. But um, we, we have this other issue, which is training. Trainers are not held accountable for the outcomes. Because there's no long-term relationship there for most of them. They turn up, they do their entertainment, and then they bugger off. And then they wonder, uh, the management wonders why nothing's changed. Is it me? Or am I just being um, overly gripey and being a troglodyte pointing the finger at these people? Or am I just... Probably probably both. (laughs) (laughs) Probably all of that. Well, it gets back to what you were saying earlier about understanding the customer, right? I mean... Selling is nothing more than facilitating buying. Yeah, and that's yeah. the point that I make. Like we're just buyer facilitators. We're not salespeople doing selling. We're buyer facilitators. And and we all know like the the, the good salespeople are on the on the buyer side. Right? They become a, a thorn in the side of the organization because they're yeah. on the buyer side, right? They're like, no, like do you represent our company or the buyer? Right? Who, 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 pay, who, who pays you? Who, who writes your paycheck? The buyer pays like, me. Yeah, the buyer writes the paycheck, not, yeah. not you, Jackass. <laughs> <laughs> this is oh we could go into this for hours okay let's uh, deal with the other fatted calf here compensation systems compensation drives behavior so looking at well, sure. investors leadership management sales and so on the behaviors that compensation seems to be driving are detrimental in many cases the emphasis on new business and new logos mm-hmm. 
That's fine and dandy, but if you're not keeping customers, you're having to replace them. Last time I had a last time I had a quota last time I had a quota carrying sales role, I got paid twice as much for a new customer as I did for an existing customer. Yeah, crazy. It costs you eight to ten times as much, takes two to four times as long, and has one eighteenth of the conversion rate. In what world, what universe, is that logical? But it's sexy. New new logos. Who cares? New logos. <laughs> but the new logo and the old logo, the dollar spends the same. The bank totally doesn't agree. give a damn. Totally agree. And I, I was working with client about 18 months ago. And when they, the penny dropped, their sales went up 600% overnight when they started selling to their existing customers. Had another one, 5,000% growth in a year. By yeah, selling to existing customers and working that network. It's interesting. Again, I think SaaS is starting to you know, kind of lead this charge as well. I mean, there's a there's a new metric bouncing around, you know, called net retained revenue, and um, and customers are start at least savvy investors. In this case, it's private equity companies that are asking, are really starting to measure: Are we keeping our revenue and are we growing it? Right. I think that um, cross selling and upselling is, and again, it depends on the nature of what you're selling, the service of the product. But cross selling and upselling, in most companies that I've worked with, has been pretty abysmal, abysmal, right? And it comes down to account management, you know, understanding who are your profitable customers, understanding not only who are your biggest customers, but who could be your biggest customers, right? This idea of opportunity, measuring opportunity in our existing customer bases is something that a lot of companies miss. I mean, they know who their biggest clients are. They I'm not sure they know who the biggest clients could be. There's a really easy exercise to do this. You take all of your accounts and you split them into A, B, and C. A are Big spenders, they buy multiple products and services, they're loyal, they buy a lot. Bs are good bread and butter customers, and Cs are occasional spenders. Now, that's this year. Then look at which of my As have the potential to become A pluses. Who's going to stay an A and who's going to drop to a B or a drop off? Same with the Bs and the Cs. And then you can identify where you should spend your energy and time. Because if you can expand those accounts, you will make a whole load more money. You get to keep more of it as well, which is nice. And it's quicker. So you can spend more time. You know, it's like retailers. They worry about stock turn. How many times does the product turn on the shelf? You know, is it uh, 12 times a year or 12 times a week? That makes a hell of a difference. It's 52 times more revenue. Now, the challenge here is how do we get people to focus on what really matters? To build on your net retained revenue issue. If you're losing 15% of your customers, which most SaaS companies are, are, every three years, you've lost 49% of your customers. That is insane. Just look after them. Don't be an ass. Take care of them. Then you don't have to replace them. Build on that. I was talking years ago, and this is just not well understood. I mean, again, in certain savvy industries it is, but certain savvy companies. But I was talking to... um, so and this has been years and years ago, but it just stuck with me, obviously still with me. Um, I was talking to someone. He actually ran a chamber of commerce. This is what he, his, he's a head of sales for a big, big, big chamber of commerce. And he said he was lamenting. He's like, you know, the board's put a, a, a 10% growth number on me for next year. And he was talking about how difficult it was going to be. And I said, well, how, how about retention? You know, how do you, he goes, oh, we're losing 15% of our, of our members a year. And I was like, you got a 25% growth number, dude. 
<laughs> it, just got, it just got worse than you thought it was, you know, and it's just, the, there was, that was just an accepted number. You know, we lose 15% a year. We got to, you know, grow by 10%. And, you know, the magnitude of the issue is really not known. And I think it's easier in SaaS companies, right? Because we're seeing repeat customers and contracts get signed or they don't get signed. But I think a lot of other customers, a lot of other companies are, are missing the, the cross-sell upsell, right? Of their existing customers. Just leadership not being thoughtful, right? Leadership just doing, just turning, just turning the gr- the grinder, right? And um, making sure those quarterly numbers come in. Again, I think one of the most obvious things that salespeople can do is just spend more time with customers. And what puzzles me is why they seem to want to spend so much time not talking to customers. I'm a huge fan of millennials and Gen Z, because I think they get a really, really terrible rap. However, one of the challenges that I do see is that the younger generation of salespeople, by and large, do not like picking up the phone, unless they've done some emails and other bits and pieces. Now, again, I think, you know, I look at people like Bilal Batrawi or Jason, and I've forgotten his surname, but just phenomenal salespeople. And they are of that sort of age range, and they have no problem picking up the phone. So I think it really depends on management in their first and second job, really teaching them the fundamentals, teaching them that selling is nothing more than facilitating buying, teaching them that the customer is at the heart of everything that you do, teaching them that buyer safety is integral to every action you take. Anything you say or do must keep the buyer safe. And buyers buy for their reasons, not yours. Take you out of the equation completely. And all of a sudden, sales becomes remarkably simple. Mm-hmm. It's open, open book test. It's the open book test, right. Okay. The other thing that really baffles me is why managers think it is okay to encourage salespeople to lie to customers or prospects. Hmm. Again, getting caught in the lie isn't the problem. The fact that you do it in the first place is, but the, the fact getting caught in the, uh, the lie isn't the problem. It's the fact that they can never trust another thing you say or do without having some modicum of doubt. So teaching things like integrity, hiring for integrity, I think are really important, particularly in the management function. A manager who hears a salesperson lying should tear them apart. Under no circumstances do you lie. And you go back and you apologize. They won't do that again in a hurry. Well, they certainly won't get caught. <laughs> but you know, why is it that lying is considered to be an okay sales practice? I'm not sure that it is. Really? Not it's not done. Speak to customers. Find out how often they've been lied to, exaggerated, stuff being omitted that was material to their decision. We've all been lied to. Anyway, okay. Tell me this then. If you're trying to build your sales force to take it to the next level, which I know is terribly vague. How do you define what those milestones are for what the next level needs to be? And what do you need to do to ensure that your people are equipped to deliver it? Well, it's a great question. I think taking it to the next level comes down to capability. And this is the challenge of, I think the challenge of sales management is one of the key challenges I should say is determining how capable your sales force is, right? What are their abilities? You know, we focus on the outcomes, obviously, and we tend to focus on the inputs if we're smart enough to think about the, you know, the behaviors of the sales team. But the capability is really difficult to measure. Is it win rate? You know, is it some 
level of certification. It's tricky business, but I think it is measured by capability. I mean, you want a more capable sales force. You want to build the quality of your sales team. And that's how you take it to the next level. When you say next level, the first thing that comes to mind is incremental boost in revenue, but that's not where you're focused, right? And that's the, that's the output of, of things. So I think that where measurement has really fallen down, and I don't have a great answer for it to be completely candid with you, is how good is your sales force? In fact, the book Cracking the Sales Management Code um, began in the um, two or three years before it was written. Um, it began in the headquarters of American Express in Manhattan. And I was a consultant and we we're having a, a, a meeting with American Express. And I was talking to just, we were on a break, we we're just coffee break. And we we're just having casual conversation with a mid-level sales guy. And he said, I was in a room with the head of global head of sales for, for American Express last week. And he asked a pretty interesting question. It was rhetorical, but he said, how do I know if my sales force is any good? Is it because they're making their quota? He's like, I set their quota. I could make them succeed or fail by that measure tomorrow with an email, right? If my my North American sales are growing faster than my European sales, does that mean my North American sales force is better than my European sales force? Well, I don't know. Who are the competitors? What's the regulatory environment? Yeah. Like, how do I know if my sales force is any good? And that began this mental exercise. And then I started gathering up management reports, right? Because I thought, well, let's see what people are actually measuring because that must be the measure of good, like whatever they're reporting. They're taking the time to gather this data and report it. And it became obvious it was just chaos. And so, you know, this idea of how capable is your sales force? Like how good is your sales force? It's really difficult to measure, but I do believe it comes down to just kind of upgrading the talent. And I don't mean necessarily firing the people and hiring people. I mean, but literally finding a way to upgrade the important skill sets in your sales force. And that actually is kind of at the heart of the training debacle you talk about, right? That we have billions of dollars being spent on training that doesn't really make the sales team any better. It's just stuff they do, right? So if the management layer is so critical, which we both agree it is, what should a sales management apprenticeship look like? Well, we get back to this fundamental question of what do you what do you want your sales managers to do? Right? Do you want them to create forecasts? Do you want them to make sure the data is put into the CRM system on Friday afternoon so you can do the forecast on Monday? Do you want them to be salespeople out in the field actually selling on behalf of the buyer? Like, what do you want them to do? And I, you know, to me, it always comes down to enabling and developing your sales team. What do you want them to do? That's the foundational question of how you measure them, how you train them, how they, your, what your apprentice program looks like. It'd be interesting to actually, I, I can't believe I haven't done this. It'd be interesting to survey sales leadership and ask them, what are the top three things you expect your sales managers to do? It'd be interesting to see what came back. And it'd be interesting to, to basically compare that to what they're actually doing by way of compensation and management and training and all the other things that actually drive management behavior, lead, uh, manager behavior. Very interesting. Okay. Well, I'm in the throes of writing a book on the sales management apprenticeship with Rod Jefferson. Sure. So I'm, I, I will conduct that research, but um, I'd love to share findings um, with you. What are the top three things you expect managers to do? I expect them to be assessing their sales team and developing them. I can tell you the one thing I'm not expecting them to do is do a forecast every week and you know give me numbers. I, it, the forecasting thing drives me insane. There, there, are a couple things I, there are a couple things I'll never know. One is how to take the gas nozzle out of the car without spilling gas on the side of it. I can't do it. I'm 51 years old. I just can't. 
And the other thing I'll never know is why we want our frontline salespeople spending hours a week doing forecasts. It's just lunacy. And, and managers and leaders, I, in fact, I'll tell you, this: I, I had an, ex, uh, an experience that is so typical, but so baffling to me. So I'm consulting to this company and they've got a new chief revenue officer. And the first week he was on the job happened to have been basically the end of September. He came on mid-September, so right, end of the quarter. And this is happening thousands of times simultaneously. The sales leader gets there and he, go, he wants to know all the deals that are going to close in the next week so he can give a forecast number to the, to, the, to the CEO. And so he's literally going deal by deal. Is there any way to, is there any way to pull this forward into this quarter? To your point, you're just robbing next quarter for this quarter. And he's got this grading system for, you know, the, obviously, is this, is this a commit or is this a maybe or is this a, and I'm sitting there watching this go for like an hour and a half. And the output of this was so that the, so the chief revenue officer could go and declare a number, right? I'm going to declare 2.4 million. And that's like the victory of this entire effort is we can go give some fictitious number that we know in a week. <laughs> it's not even like yeah. not even like we're forecasting years in advance. How many salespeople were in that meeting? I'm sorry. How many salespeople were in that meeting? Well, in this, there are no salespeople. There's all the sales managers, which I think is as much. How many? Of a crime. How many of them were there? There were three sales managers and two consultants and uh, a, an ops person. And I mean, if you think about how much money was being spent over this 90 minutes, so we could declare a number victoriously yeah, that we're going to know in seven hours. days anyway. There's nine man hours built in just with the people that you mentioned. And, and he, if you look at their revenue targets or what they're meant to be contributing to business, you're probably talking four to $8,000 a head per day. But here's the thing that drives me crazy is nothing that happened in that time affected anything. No, right. No. They didn't Points. improve their chances of winning a deal. They weren't out there trying to win the deal. They were they were declaring the deal, right? It's masturbatory activity. No no progeny it's, off the back of it. It's just pointless. And the CRO thinks this is his job. Like this is the this is his victory for the for the week is to declare a number that we're gonna know that, in a that month. Was, in a week. That was your red flag to remove him in the first week. And the leadership loves it. Leadership loves it because he's actively in there, like knowing the deals and asking the hard questions and coming up with a commitment of a number. The whole thing is just, and, and it's not even, it's not rare. Like it, that's, no, that, that's, the, that's the expectation, right? Yeah. The leadership and the private equity team love this guy because he does exactly that. He commits to a number. Right? He does everything wrong. Well. <laughs> even me. I'm good. I've been thinking about writing a, writing a blog post and I've got, already got the title. It's like forecasting is stupid. There, I said it. <laughs> I definitely agree with you. I, it, it's not the forecasting is a bad thing. Just the way you do it is shit. Your salespeople should be able to give you in three minutes a day per rep, a very clear picture of what's new, what's moved forward, what's fallen out and what's won. That's a three-minute conversation a day. So you never have to waste time forecasting because you already know where everything is. Well, I don't even know if it's that much time. I mean, we put CRM in place, and I don't think I'm being too cynical here. But <laughs> CRM was largely put in place to improve forecasting. Yes, yeah, in order to the, the idea is we put information in there and we have real-time reporting, but yet we get together once a week with all our salespeople and we scrub the data in the system, right? We go through the data. And in reality, if the people are putting in the data, and the methodology is clear and the process is right, the CRO should just press a button and have the forecast, right? Why do we have to go 
review, like the whole thing, I just can't. And this is how it's done. This is not even an aberration. This, this is not an aberration. No, Collective acts of idiocy are quite depressingly common. But add to that the fact that managers are not trained how to recruit, how to hire, how to coach, how to train, how to develop their people. And you've got basically a shitstorm. And, well, and you know, increasingly, I'm of the opinion that in the companies that I'm working with, I just hire a recruiter. Like, I just take it out of their hands. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got some good sales recruiters. They, they always bring high-quality people. They've typically worked out, right? If they don't work out in 90 days, you get your money back. I mean, it's not like, why even just, well, just, get, a recruit, just get a recruiter, just get a recruiter. I, I've changed the structure with the way I work with recruiters now. Um, so we pay them a monthly retainer to build the bench. And when they make a placement, the placement gets paid on a monthly basis over 24 months because I'm not interested in hiring. I'm interested in hiring someone who succeeds and stays. Of course. And I think we need to ask some fundamental questions in the same way that you know, we should be thinking, why does the buyer behave in the way that they do and what will cause them to purchase? We need to understand what will make someone succeed in the role for which we are hiring. Now, the years have taught me that the three things that most people recruit for, skills, experience, and results, are bad indicators because they're all lagging indicators. They're not leading indicators. The leading indicators are habits. What does someone do repeatedly without having to have a boot on their neck? Cognitive abilities. So their ability to learn and adapt to the current environment and their attitudes, beliefs, and values. These three are really good predictors of success. Skills, experience, and results aren't. And I see so many organizations cut and paste the same job description that caused them to hire the wrong person the last time and then put that out again. Well, experience and success, I think they're they're legitimate. I mean, skills, I do think skills matter. Um, I think skills and all the other things you mentioned (laughs) are just, they're hard to quantify, right? I mean, we're we're attracted to things we can quantify, right? It's it's appeasing. That's why we obsess over price and buyers obsess, obsess over price when no one really buys on price. But it's quantifiable and it's the last thing we talk about before we sign the contract. So it becomes the obsession. But yeah, I totally agree. I mean, how long someone's worked in the industry is kind of irrelevant. Well, Gartner's research on this is really clear. The only contribution that experience adds to a new hire is a slightly faster ramp-up time. Mm -hmm. If you hire for what you cannot train, miraculously, you end up with much better people. My pal, Joe Mullings, runs a recruitment company, and their consultants average 300 to 500% more than their industry average in billings. Because the recruitment process is so thorough. They focus on hiring for what you cannot train. They focus on hiring people who are high on trust. Competency, that can be average because they can build that. But if they don't have the right mindset, they don't have the right habituation, and they're not people who learn and adapt, not going to work. And I think we've got to really emphasize recruitment at a management level. Yeah, I agree. And the other thing that I started doing is... um... So back to the back to understanding the buyer. You know, the best salesperson I could hire would be someone from my customer. Right? If I could talk one of my customers to come sell for me, that would be the best. Yeah. yeah and then, and then the direction that I've been given the recruiters is I don't care if they sold my product or service. I care that they've sold to my customers. So as long as they understand the customers they're selling to, I can teach them the product in a number of weeks. Right. The product is not that difficult. And if it, and if it is a difficult product, then we have product specialists. Right. <laughs> so it's not. There's, there's no reason to think that the person should have sold the product. What I want to know is that they understand the customers. 
and yeah. you know, we've had pretty good, pretty good success. Well, one of my business ideas for the next couple of years is to hire people in their late 40s, early 50s who probably found themselves on the scrap heap recently because of COVID and um, what I think is coming, which is a hike in interest rates and oh, sure. a, a collapse of cheap money. And these people, I think, will make fabulous salespeople if you pick the right ones because they've got the scar tissue. They've sat the other side of the desk and listened to the crap that salespeople spout to them. They know the moving parts. They know in operations the work that they do affects every other part of the business. And they know who's scrutinizing them. They know who's vying for the same budgets, all that kind of stuff. That's invaluable knowledge. And this is why in the training, you've got to start with business acumen. Understand the customer first, and then understand the moving parts in a business. Don't, even with veterans, I think they need that because I've coached a lot of veterans with 20, 30 years experience. And as I start digging into their thinking, their planning, the deals, I'm shocked at how lacking in understanding and knowledge they are. And hmm. they're successful largely because of the brand, uh, the logo on their business card. That is a problem because you can't sell through recessions on that. You can't sell where the market has been disrupted. And the next three to four years off the back of COVID, we are going to see a hell of a lot of disruption. I think 30 to 40% of sales jobs will disappear almost in vapor because they will be replaced by intelligent marketing smart websites, uh, AI and marketplaces. Yeah, um, maybe, you know, this was the narrative in the late 90s when the internet was coming along, right? I mean, people that I respected said 30% of jobs will be gone in 10 years. In, in reality, if you look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics in the United States, the, the exact percentage of the workforce is in sales that was in 1999. Like not a single salesperson has been dislodged by the internet. Now, obviously this technology with, Artificial intelligence and things has gotten much more sophisticated, but it wasn't the case that websites replaced salespeople. Um, salespeople evolved. I think if you look, generally speaking, sales forces now create much more value than they did 20 years ago, right? I mean, the sales forces have had to evolve. So we'll see. I don't know. I'm not sure if 30% of anyone's going to lose their job, but maybe. I'm happy to be well, wrong. Let me just expand the thought. 30%, I think, will disappear because of technology and a push from the SDR function into marketing. I think a large number of vendors will realize that, and particularly upstart vendors, will realize that you cannot scale by hiring a land army. You scale by going through partners and alliances. And I think that's where a lot of sales jobs will go. Hmm. And then the remaining 20 to 30%, those will be the phenomenal salespeople. They're going to be the ones who are strategic. They partner with their customer. They partner with their partners, they partner internally, they're hyper-collaborative, and they solve complex solutions, and they're there for the long haul. They're not trying to just transact and get out. They don't sell and run. And I think that's the way, I, I'm guessing that's the way the market will go, but it's going to be interesting to see it, how it all evolves. Yep. Let's see if I'm still around. To witness <laughs> it. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. We've come to the top of the hour. Tell me this. You've got a golden ticket, and you can go back and you can advise the idiot Jason age 23, what advice would you give him that you know he would have probably either ignored or taken too long to implement? Oh, this is an easy one. Uh, trust your instincts. I've never really done kind of like a New Year's resolution kind of thing, but usually on my birthday, I take stock, right? That's just when annually when I think about things. And, and more than once I've said, 
I've looked back at the year before and I was like, your intuition was just right. Like your, your gut told you not to trust this person. And sure enough, you got screwed or your gut told you you should have, you know, you shouldn't be in this company. And sure enough, a year later you, you left the company, but you wasted a year. Right. So for me, I would say, just trust your instincts, like trust your gut. And, um, I've stayed in places too long that I shouldn't have, you know, we've been in, we've all done this, right? I mean, so I'm, uh, I'm slow to pull the trigger on things, even when I know it's the truth. So unquestionably, that's my, that's my, that's what I'd write down and put in my pocket. I would put it in my wallet and that's good advice. It every day. What books would you podcast videos? Would you recommend people pay attention to? So I teach this course at university of Virginia, as I said, you know, I'm a believer in the classics. You know, I think that there's really nothing new in sales in the past 30 or 40 years. I mean, I, I, if it were me, I'd read everything Neil Rackham ever wrote. The Miller-Hyman stuff is good. Just don't see any reason to, to rethink it. I'm not seeing a lot of real innovation other than process and enroll stuff that I mentioned before. So I always point people back to the, back to the origins. So I guess I'm not very interesting in that way. If you look <laughs> at my bookshelf, all the books are written in the 80s, you know, <laughs> except for mine. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fabulous book and sales insanity as well I've, I've been skimming through it i haven't had a chance to read it yet but it's fabulous yeah it's meant to be different you know if, I, if cracking the sales management code is harvard business review this is like people right this is uh each chapter is five to seven pages they're just stories of stupid things that i saw with lessons at the end it's meant to be fun and that's you know if there, aren't too many, there aren't too many comedies in sales and i would say this is probably probably a comedy with some lessons on the <laughs> Well, if, if you can't learn from other people's suffering, you're wasting an opportunity. Well, I've got a quote here. I've got a quote here from Mel Brooks. Tragedy is when I cut my finger. Comedy is when you fall into an open sewer and die. <laughs> I like that. Actually, that's, that's, that's sales insanity. People fall into an open <laughs> sewer and die. Excellent. Jason, how can people get hold of you? You find me on LinkedIn. Best place to get me. Pretty easy to track down. Fabulous. Jason, thank you so much thoroughly enjoyable and insightful conversation. I hope to have you back if you're willing. Yeah, Marcus, happy to do anytime. Excellent. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this, you found it useful, then please make notes, go back and listen again, and definitely get both of Jason's books because they are well worth it. Cracking the Sales Management Code and Sales Insanity. And if you feel the urge, please go on to Apple and leave a, an honest review. If you want to give it one star, let's give it one star. If you want to give it five, give it five. But in the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.